We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha. Thanks for listening to Layman's Lounge Podcast. Where we today we have non-tenant. Non is the author of The Spine of Scripture, God's Kingdom from Eden to Eternity. And he's the co-author of It's Good to Be a Man, a Handbook for Godly Masculinity. I, brother, I think a lot of people think it's weird because I used to have an American uh, American flag when I was younger hanging in my ha- like in my room. And then I, I realized the last, I don't know, like maybe four years, I'm kind of like, I, I don't want one. You know, I'm like, oh, I don't want an American flag it, you know. It, it just doesn't seem, it seems almost like a, well, I never really thought of it, but then I started thinking, why don't I want an American flag? And then I realized I'd have like been infected so much. I'm like, wait, people are like waving the, you know, that gay flag. That thing's like replacing the American flag. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I'm this super orthodox, God bless America like historical Christianity, but they even got me and I go out of my way to not be got. So the same thing has happened with manhood. Cause like anytime, you know, prior to reading your guys' stuff and listening to podcasts, I thought, Ooh, manhood, Ooh, ew, we shouldn't talk about this. And then the, the instant word that comes up is that stupid word toxic. I freaking hate that word toxic. So, um, what do you think about that? You, I'm sure that's that's the water we've been swimming in, and it's gross. It makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. The question of why you would need to talk about manhood just doesn't make sense to so many people, even in the church, unfortunately. Um, in New Zealand, we don't ha- really have a thing about flags. I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's had a New Zealand flag anywhere on their property. It's awesome. But but the same kind of idea, like I understand the connection you're making there. That analogy is pretty good for an American. The the idea that you should, that there's something icky about the flag. You shouldn't really want one of those, or you shouldn't really want manhood. You shouldn't need to think about that. You just, you are a man because God made you a man and there's nothing that you need to do. That's yeah, and uh, not a, only, a very insidious lie. And not only like that, I shouldn't do it, but it's almost like, um, it's just like politically incorrect for some reason if you will, to fly a flag in America. Not really, but but it's almost like seen that way. And the same way, it's like Christian politically incorrect and a lot of evangelical circles, even like legit, like OPC or PCA, like some of these guys, it's all like, oh, that's toxic to focus on like manhood. And, you know, I get all these press releases and so many things are about toxic max- masculinity, you know, and that like, I know this. Really? Oh yeah. There's so many books that have come out and um, you know, I'm a, like a big time, like Kyperian neo-Calvinist and most of the neo-Calvinists these days are full on disgusting liberals. And mm-hmm. one of, one of those imposters is this girl who teaches in like Calvin and she wrote like Jesus and John Wayne. Oh yeah. Kristen do may or whatever her name is. Yeah. And it's like, anyways, I, I'm just right now, I think I'm venting. I'm going to stop venting. So brother, (laughs) when did you realize, oh man, something's a little, something's a little off with like being a man. Like, how did you even isolate that as a concept? 
that's actually a good question because it's it wasn't really a, a single thing i wouldn't say i would i was kind of tracking on it once i wrote the spine of scripture because it it wasn't directly relevant but the fact that the kingdom of god is this kind of all-encompassing idea in the uh, i don't know if you've read the spine of scripture but basically the idea is that I talk about the way that the gospel has been diluted down to nothing but atonement. And in fact, when you look at the way that the gospel is preached in the New Testament and you trace the biblical theology of the gospel through the Old Testament as well, it's much more about God's kingdom. And that got me thinking about the fact that there is this kind of, there's a connection between the way that the gospel is watered down into something very, uh, very thin, you might say, very, very focused rather than bringing in a lot of other stuff. And the fact that there is this kind of culture in the church where it's, if you think about the way that there's, there's all this question about can women teach and can women preach and so on. I, I saw, I, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how it, in my mind, whether this was really fleshed out as a coherent thought or if it was more of an intuition. But there was a connection to me between the difficulty that people have in articulating why it is that women shouldn't preach or what the conditions are under which women might be allowed to preach and the way that we we tend to go for proof texts in scripture. So there's no proof text about women preaching as long as all the men leave. Therefore, it must be OK. That kind of idea I had. It seemed to me that there was a connection between that and the way that the gospel itself had gotten kind of pared down to this really narrow focus. And we'd lost sight of the actual shape of the thing. So that rather than talking about like here are the hard edges of the gospel, let's talk about what are the, what's the actual whole shape of the gospel. And the same thing is true of masculinity. Rather than talking about what are the hard edges of masculinity, what are the things that we can absolutely know for sure that are clearly defined in obvious verses in scripture? What's the whole shape that scripture gives us? And how does that connect with the idea of the gospel as a kingdom? Because if you have a kingdom, you have to have a king and a king has representatives and the representatives are obviously men because they're representing the king who's a man. And so there were all these, there's this kind of nexus of ideas going on and around that time, I came across Rolla Tomasi, who I don't necessarily recommend reading. He's absolutely terrible on religion, but he's good at um, summarizing some of the key ideas that have become commonplace now in the manosphere. And so I read Rolla Tomasi. I came across Del Rock, uh, read all their stuff and kind of started putting the pieces together and, and synthesizing it with what I knew of scripture and biblical theology and symbolism and all the other things that I'm into. And also at that time, met Michael Foster, who was coming at it from quite a different angle he's he's much more of a historian and had been studying it properly in a more academic way for a long time but he was looking for someone who could kind of help him popularize the ideas because he saw it as being a, an important moment and we just kind of met at the right time through god's providence and were able to work together i'm i'm good at taking what he writes and making it better so that was kind of how we did things i know that I first like discovered there's a whole like world like that I've noticed that's like the canon world um the Moscow you know, Idaho world yeah that whole that whole world it's not really my world um but it's like and everyone kind of like gets all pissed off at that world a little bit or something oh but, it, it's a much much reviled world yeah and I and I was like that's all right 
But I, I think I listened to an interview with Doug Wilson and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy sounds like the closest thing to Abraham Kuyper since Abraham Kuyper. I'm like, wow, this is unbelievable. And anyways, it, it kind of set me on a rabbit trail. And then I found Michael Foster, like did this, like by, it was the one by himself years ago. And it was like, it was, it was almost first like an expose of just like showing us like, like, look, you guys you guys have had the wool pulled over your head. And I legit, <laughs> I remember listening to that and I'm like, forget it, man tits gone. And I legit did push-ups right, like as I'm listening to it, I'm not even lying. I'm like, yes, come on. And I'm like, so can you share, like for the people who are listening right now and they're just like, they're, they like the talking about, you know, the atonement and the Trinity and, you know, the eternal generation. And like for those people who are like, they're sound, I'm sure you could take this a lot of ways, but as far as the man portion, um, can you just like show us the obvious, basically give us a diagnosis on like the effeminate church. I think that's really, really helpful. Okay. A lot of the people that are most into theology do tend to be effeminate. And that's not something which is a new <laughs> phenomenon. That's just the truth. It's been a, a thing for hundreds of years. It's been, um, there are a few books that have kind of documented the the development of, it's not, not necessarily focused on effeminacy in the church, but really so focusing on the, the development of gender relations in the church and the sociology of the church. And the way that as the church became more developed after the Reformation, especially, and you had a kind of professional clergy class that was able to develop, much like the priestly class under Roman Catholicism, you had a situation where men who were intellectually capable, but socially stunted in some way or unwilling to work or unable to work in normal manly occupations in some way, would get kind of groomed to go into the pulpit instead because it was a nice safe place where they could exercise their intellectual talents without having to worry about being thought of less of a man. Unfortunately, it did end up that they still were thought of less of a man because that's just the nature of the, the kind of work that you're doing. If you're only doing intellectual work and you're never working with your hands, you're never showing any kind of practical skills, men, it's not even necessary that men don't respect you as much. It's, it's more that you lose your connection with a common man. And yeah. what you end up doing instead is you end up forming all of these connections with women and so the clergy became known as the third sex, where they were really focused on speaking to women and pleasing women. And gradually men became the minority in churches, as they still are today. So a lot of churches are 60, 40 women, men, some are much worse. Mm -hmm. And as that happens, obviously there is a skew that takes place and the, the sociological pressure starts to direct how you think theologically as well. And so you start to get, you know, the Methodists were pretty early and bringing in women pastors and then the mainline denominations started to go soft on that kind of thing. And essentially you get softness because you're always concerned about upsetting the women, upsetting the women, don't upset the women because women are not like men. Women are, if you look at the way that, if you have like a mixed group of people and you get to more than about eight people, the women will naturally break off into their own little group to talk amongst themselves because they find male conversation unsettling and disturbing because we are forceful in our conversation. We aren't afraid to call each other out or say mean things to each other. In fact, we bond by being mean to each other. 
Whereas women exclude each other by being mean to each other. So women are designed, psychologically, women are designed to kind of knit things together and establish communities and so on. And they're great at that. And if you think about what you think of as polite society, that Mm -hmm. really is a phenomenon where women, with the feminine psychology, has um, kind of brought together both men and women into a common area where both know the rules and can follow the rules sufficiently to, for everyone to be comfortable. So it's kind of like a compromise right. zone. Whereas if you have all male spaces and a woman enters it, it fundamentally changes what that space is because it's a completely different thing. Men bond by excluding. They're always competing in the hierarchy to see where they stand. That's just not how women work. And so as the as a church becomes more feminine in that way, you find that the prophetic voice is lost because the prophetic voice by definition is exclusive, saying this, not that. Thus says the Lord, you shall not, these kinds of things. These are very uncomfortable to the feminine mindset. And so women, if you've got a lot of women in charge of the church or with a lot of sway over the church, mm-hmm. they will start to say, well, we don't really like the way that that man's talking. He seems very exclusive. He's trying to exclude people. That's not <laughs> kind. That That's not loving. That's not, as the word has become in today's, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice has replaced all the other commandments and and in, the, in like the um online world for christians the annoying word for that is winsome exactly yeah oh, nice and winsome nice and winsome gag throw up in my throat what about mm-hmm. again like back to like okay like sunday morning where where can like so the guys listening to this right now they're like really i'm i might be a little effeminate and i don't kind of don't really know it and the pastors i bet there's pastors right now who are listening to this and they're like oh man is this me where do we see that on a mother's day sermon and a father's day sermon and on singing that's a great yeah three great examples mother's day sermons will always be affirming mothers and they'll especially affirm single mothers because single mothers feel very kind of um insecure because you know they're they're working by themselves they haven't got a man to support them you have to affirm how empowered they are how great a job they're doing you can never say anything mean about women don't call out women's sins if you you'll find that there are a lot of people in the church you can ask them what are the sins that women are particularly prone to and they won't even have an answer it doesn't even occur to them that women can sin in a particularly feminine way um whereas father's day sermons will tend to be either you guys are terrible pigs or you guys need to man up and do a better job it's two sides of the same coin So it's very seldom affirming the value of fatherhood, even though Christianity is a religion of God, the father in whom, in whose image all fathers are made. But generally speaking, the the sermon on a father's day will always be along the lines of how fathers aren't doing a good enough job. And it will never affirm fathers in the same way that it affirms mothers. In fact, a lot of father's day sermons just turn into an excuse for affirming women, which is very sad. The singing, is the third example you raise is a good one. Uh, if you look at the way that a lot of churches do their worship, they think, first of all, they think of worship in terms of singing, which is fundamentally skewed. So the worship leader is actually just the singer, not the preacher, which is very strange if you think about it. <laughs> not, not that singing doesn't have anything to do with worship or warfare, it does, but it's, it's not the sum total of it. And the way that they organize the singing, often you'll have a lot of women leading the singing, which means that the the vocal range is such that it's uncomfortable for men to sing in. And also when you have women leading singing, men don't feel inclined to follow because men are made to lead women and women are made to follow men. And that's just the fact you can't wait. Just just so the listeners don't miss, miss that. 
a, a more true statement was never has never been said when the worship singers up there if it's a guy and he's got his capo on the 12th fret and he's just like noodling away or there's the girl up there singing i'm not i'm not singing because even if i want to I, I can't get up there i just my my voice won't do it and just, uh, um so i'm not adding i just want to acknowledge that Everyone knows that. If you're listening, you know that. Is that a problem? It's a problem because the whole idea of worship is that it's a corporate event. You're you're worshiping as a body. That's like that's the major analogy that scripture gives us for understanding the church, right? It's the body of Christ. And a body works as one. The whole point of the body is that it's many members that are one together. And when you worship, you should be worshiping as one. This is why I'm a big proponent of like a kind of call and response type liturgy because mm -hmm. um if you don't have any if you don't have the congregation doing anything in worship you're turning worship into a spectator sport instead of something that the congregation actually does so if the congregation isn't singing which is one of the major ways in which it can be involved in the worship then it's not worshiping so you say it's the worship leader but the worship leader is actually out there really performing by himself he's not leading anything yeah. in most in most services yeah and it's partly because the songs are written to be solo performances rather than for the congregation to sing them and it's yeah. partly because they're written in the wrong register so the men can't sing it's partly because you've got a guy up there who's dressed in skinny jeans and essentially looks like a woman if you think about the way that the <laughs> the rock and the rock and roll scene um it, it, like think about 80s rock and roll and the, the kind of icons you get out of that what they're doing visually with themselves they're wearing these tight-fitting clothes that you would normally associate with feminism with, with with the feminine form and they're growing out their hair long and they're putting on lots of makeup they're androgenizing themselves they're making themselves uh, sexually confused and that's been kind of it's not as severe in churches obviously you don't get guys usually dressed in like tight leather and so on but that vibe has been imbibed and has become a normal part of the idea of performing music now in a lot of our culture 100 so if we're calling this portion like the the church effeminate and the example of just sort of this weak singing it's not really for us we don't feel like we're all part of it yeah i want to freaking clinch my fist like i want to get rowdy i have a bad voice i want my voice to get lost in everyone else's voice and right. so like hey, you, you want to be singing psalms that uh battle hymns or that talk about the glory of god and instead you're singing about how jesus is your boyfriend brother and everyone reformed every guy or gal listening who's like reformed or whatever whatever 20 years before they were reformed, when they were 15 years old, they had a problem singing those. The All boys had a problem singing those songs. It never seems right to make out with Jesus. Like that vibe never, it just, no matter, it just, the, at the core of who we are, it just doesn't right. So if, if so far these two diagnoses are this idea of like the pastor somehow unbeknownst to him is like, rebuking the, the men telling the men up but he's like praising the women and then the singing is another one what are the other what are just some other like like smoking guns we're like oh man there is because i really want the listeners to catch that there's an issue because it's like the wool i mean you could touch on the white 
the white knight or all you know these other things white knight goes along with this it's kind of a, a standard psychology where you see it outside the church as well it's very common everywhere and it's i think greatly exacerbated by the fact that so many men are raised by women because single mothers are so common nowadays and the father's absent in some way whether he's left or whether he's been kicked out or whether he's died or whether he's just you know emotionally absent you get these young men who essentially as as a boy grows up he needs to be he's largely identifying with his mother because from the youngest age his mother is the nurturer the, the person who he's closest to um she feeds him from her own body that's the way it's designed to be and as he grows up he needs to separate from the mother and attach more to the father and as he becomes a man he naturally moves out of the kind of mother influence area and, and out into the world to work with his father and that's how it's typically been for thousands of years but in the modern day it almost never happens and what happens is instead the boy becomes confused about what it means to be a man because he's kind of artificially attached to his mother he's kind of stuck on that and a lot of the time especially in cases of single motherhood and so on he's he's called on before he's ready to start providing for her and so he sees women as kind of simultaneously extremely noble and worthy and uh, needing all glory and affirmation because that's his mother and she's everything in his life and at the same time as something very vulnerable that needs to be protected and provided for and he sees men he sees himself as unsuited to that task he sees he's like a, he's got a huge insecurity because he's had to do it from such a young age this isn't every single white knight obviously but this is something that does seem to happen a lot and so he's insecure about it he sees other men rather than as people that he can cooperate with and um, compete with in a friendly way in order to establish a good male dominance hierarchy that would benefit everyone he right. sees them as a threat he sees them as those guys are a threat to my mother or a threat to all women and he he kind of imposes his mother on all women it becomes it's all about his mother <laughs> this sounds super yeah. freudian but i don't know yeah, what to tell okay. you man it's, this is what i've observed so he will look at a woman in distress of some kind and all the woman has to do in order to kind of trigger this instinct is to say this man's being mean to me and he'll automatically assume the woman is in the right and that the man is a terrible dragon who needs to be slain yeah. and off he will go he'll rally the troops if he can and um they'll all go and burn this man and, and you know put the woman on the pedestal where she belongs which is great if the man really is evil and the woman really does need to be saved but if the opposite is true as is very often the case you see this with the me too movement believe all women it's like well, why lots of them are lying but you've got all these men who will rush to the defense of the women in order to signal their virtue and i think there is some kind of weird and sexual here as well a lot of them are like if i if i can just um defend this woman hard enough then she'll want to have sex with me yeah. which isn't actually how it works but you know that's the psychology that's in play and so they'll rush to this woman's defense and they won't even consider whether she's lying it, it won't occur to them at all and they'll be quite willing to destroy a man's life you know they'll they'll say this guy's a rapist and they'll fire him and they'll put him in prison it doesn't even like even if he gets a fair trial it doesn't matter at that point his life is ruined and they don't care because oh. they were doing the right thing by defending a woman that, that's kind of the white knight mentality so i got i've got this friend 
and he goes to marriage counseling and full on brother the the guy the pastor counseling him is just like like caressing the the wife like she can do no wrong and him he's got a man up that's what like that you know and so what's being put before him is like this notion of manning up what can you tell us you know like the mormons when they say faith and heaven it's different than what we're saying we say faith and heaven right what do what do these guys mean when they say you got to be the man you got to man up Ultimately, what they're saying is you have to sacrifice yourself and your needs and your desires no matter what, because women should never have to do that. They don't want to tell women, though. So if, if the woman is in sin and they can see that the woman is in sin, it's really hard to tell a woman, especially as a man, you're in sin and you need to repent. It's much, much easier to tell her husband, hey, you need to man up and deal with this situation and do what you can to support your wife. And so that's what they'll do because they're cowards. White, white knights are fundamentally cowards, unfortunately. And cowards will always choose the easy way, the, the way of least resistance in these conflict. And yeah, yeah. they would always much rather fight with a man than with a woman because it's just a, it's impossible a, to fight with a woman and without looking bad yourself. <laughs> You're always going to end up, people are going to hate you. It's, it's another version. It's, it's one aspect of like, kind of like virtue signaling. It's really what's happening. Exactly. I gotta like, I gotta hit you with this Abraham Kuyper quote that he said in 1868, modernism, which is the spirit of the age, everything, right. Which denies and abolishes every difference cannot rest until it has made woman, man, and man, woman. I mean, he was so spot on like, right. Yep. And it's like, yep. first of all, saw it coming. Well, well done, Kuiper. And he knew it was rooted in the, re you know, the, the French Revolution. I've heard you yeah. talk about. Anyways. Um, yeah, Debney was saying a similar thing around the same time. And people are like, wow, how do they know? It's like, well, they weren't like, they didn't have supernatural knowledge. They mm -hmm. were just attentive to the patterns of creation and the patterns of history. Right. And they right. saw, they knew that ideas have consequences and that as you work the ideas out, these things are going to necessarily follow. Totally, totally. So if we've established a, a diagnosis that something's askew, something's afoot, and again, the pastors listening to this, they're probably guilty uh, of of being part of the problem. We're but all guilty to some degree. I mean, Michael and I wrote the book as a project of repentance. Yeah, yeah. So the question now becomes like, all right, well, and this is, I think, where you shine because you're like very much like sort of a, a biblical theolo theologian, like sort of the overview, which is really so good. It's not what you would expect from a book like this. You would not expect those first chapters. And they were really, I mean, that's like your heart is Voss style, like well done, well done. So can you, can you tell us about, I guess, your part would be the unfolding and the telos, and then maybe Michael Foster would be the one who said patriarchy or death. But you could <laughs> speak to both of them. Can you can you yeah, give us sure. like, all right, man, redirect me then? Yeah. Well, in terms of telos is really important to everything that we do. Uh, I think that one of the main problems that we have in the modern day is that we've allowed the world to essentially reframe the way that we think so that telos isn't a part of it which is how you can end up with Christians so confused about 
whether it's okay to have like a celibate homosexual relationship and that kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, there's no verse against that. So it, maybe it's okay. And they're not having sex. So, but if you understand mankind in terms of telos, in terms of his creative purpose, what is he made for? What is he supposed to be doing? Where is he going? Where is the whole of creation going? What is the gospel achieving in creation? Then all of these things start to make a great deal more sense. So we obviously spend a lot of time. I, I have many times uh, scripture tells me not to drive your, your children to exasperation and I try not to, but one of the things that I make no apologies for is when we're going through some kind of theological concept and I say, right, turn to Genesis and they all go, Oh, and I say, everything's in Genesis. They go, oh, I know everything's in Genesis. Everything yeah. is actually in Genesis yeah. because Genesis is the seed from which all the scripture grows. So everything oh, is in there. And so we spend a lot of time in Genesis in the book, because it tells us about the creation of man and woman and the way that we are made tells us things about our purpose. Man is made from the earth for the earth. Woman is made from the man for the man. Wait, what? And... Woman is made what? <laughs> from the man for the man. No, it can't be. I don't receive it. No, just we simply don't receive <laughs> that, right? No. Well, I can I can take you to 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul's reflecting on this fact and <laughs> he explains it explicitly, but I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But what do, what do you do when you come to when you've come to, when you come face to face with people who know that that woman was made for the man and you have Paul like saying even more um, offensive if if the you know by definition of modernity woman is the glory of a man it's like, what which well that's actually that's a, that's so interesting that people find that offensive because once you actually work through the theology yeah. of glory and you understand what's going on there it's like how could that be offensive? That's <laughs> that's like the most, that's the highest glory of creation. He's saying women are the highest glory of creation and you find that offensive. It doesn't make any sense. So let the listener know that they could go, you could go to non.com, B as in boy, B-N-O-N-N.com. And you have a a post recently on, it was actually on head covering, or I don't know if this one's yeah, recent. I did a few on head coverings recently. You did, talking about the glory and I was mm. like, oh, man, that was really good. Anyway, side note, that was a side note. But what is what is the what is the telos of 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 the of the? Yeah. No, sorry, go on. I just need to turn. Yeah, this, no, um... what is the telos of the man and the woman like respectively? Like what what's a man supposed to be up to? Is he supposed to be out like with his shirt off wrestling, you know, wild boars and like, <laughs> well, God gives dominion to both man and woman. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and rule the earth and subdue it. And the way that he even describes the image of God itself is in terms of this rulership. He says, let us make man in our image and let him rule, 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 rule. It's like yeah. seven different times he, yeah. he uses um, an example of rulership in order to illustrate what the image of God is. So that, that's not like, I, I wouldn't say that the, the image of God is exhausted in rulership, but clearly rulership has something important to do with it. Mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, how does man rule over the earth? What's he meant to be doing? And the answer is quite clearly, as you, as you work through Genesis, you see God creating on the first six days and establishing the order of the world establishing you know he divides 
different parts of the world from each other in order to create these domains. And then he fills these domains in order for everything inside it to work coherently together and cohesively together. He creates these hierarchies in creation. So he's est essentially establishing right order in creation. Mm -hmm. And then he makes man at the end of it in order to continue that work. Man obviously can't put stars in the sky and he can't you know, separate the land from the sea, but man is put in place to continue the, the process down onto the, the human scale of ordering the world as God began that process. All right, pause, which does not sound radical to most people. That doesn't sound radical. What, what we think is radical Christianity is going to like the remote island, you know, and living there or whatever, or supporting the pastor. I right. got, I did, I got this, you guys have this unbelievable section in the book. Um, I, I asked Canon if I could re, repent, reprint that part on the website. And I did, and it's called, it's called, well, this is a, a line that you guys said that I labeled it, aspire to be as great within your lot as you can be. And then it says, ordinary labor is spiritual work when it is done in the service of the Lord of spirits. And brother, if there is one thing that I've learned from like, from Kuiper, it's, 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 it's every sphere. The Lord is the Lord of every square inch, not just yep. Sunday. And that gives Christ for all of life. That gives me so much joy. So I cut you off just to <laughs> acknowledge the fact that it, that like, that doesn't seem flashy or exciting. And we yep. acknowledge that. And then yes, please continue. Yeah. Well, we've lost our theology of vocation. We don't believe really in our heart of hearts. We don't believe that normal physical labor of any kind, like working in a cubicle or laying bricks or whatever the case may be. We don't believe in our heart of hearts anymore that that's actually serving Christ. Even though Paul tells us multiple times in the New Testament, you serve the Lord Christ by doing these things. When he's talking to slaves, especially, he's at, at pains to emphasize how they need to be serving their masters willingly, not as lip service, because they're not really serving their masters. They're actually serving Jesus. Yes. And the same thing in Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. That, that word there, service, yeah. is latria, where we get the word liturgy from. So all of life is liturgical. Come on, brother. And Adam yeah. was made to do that kind of work, that liturgical work. Yeah. And that's all kind of gathered up into the Lord's day where we present our work to God and he judges it and he rests, we rest in him. Um, that, that's, that's all true. I'm not in any way diminishing the Lord's day. But we need to remember that all of life is service to God. So there is a sense in which all of life is worship. And so how does one worship as a man then as, hmm. as, like in the in the home? So a lot, I think most of our listeners are in their 30s, right? So how do how do these men who are and a lot of them are like pastors or like actually a lot of like theologians stuff? How do how do these guys, you know, other than writing articles about the atonement you know and and taking the media you know taking hollywood for christ whatever that means like at the most like rudimentary sense of like just having your house and like dishes going on walks driving eating eating spare ribs like where <laughs> that place is man being optimal man and it's actually glorifying god right well the the kind of center of it 
the way that God gives it in Genesis is that you need a man and a woman in order to fully exercise dominion. The man can't fill the world and the woman can't subdue the world. Man is much stronger than woman, but man can't create babies. And so you need both in order to establish a proper household, which is a, a, a in the modern day, we've come to think of the individual as the fundamental unit of society. And that's yeah. atomized society completely. We've yeah. become interchangeable blocks, which is why you have all of these supposedly thorny questions about women in the workplace and you know all these kinds of things but in scripture the fundamental unit of society is the household and the household can be very small it can be just two men uh, two two men <laughs> it can be a man and a woman but a man and a woman are put together into a household in order to produce more of themselves and mm -hmm. as you build the house you establish this hierarchy structure this little tiny cosmic mountain you might say and yeah. that creates a safe location a safe um it's called a house for a reason um in scripture the word house mean just as in english really means both a household and the physical building so the physical yeah. building is actually a, a physical expression of what the household is yeah. it's this solid structure that can be defended um it, it protects and supports you at the same time so the, the household is like this kind of existential thing in scripture it's not just a place where you go to sleep and watch movies together or whatever netflix you know mm -hmm. it's a place where you find your identity and you are formed into the kind of thing god wants you to be at least that's the how it should work if you think so about the way that Go on. So what are what's the specific marching order? So if I were to hit Genesis, hmm. I'd be like, okay, yeah. I see, I see, I see God is div a divider and a, mm -hmm. and a filler, and then I see that handed us, you know, mm -hmm. like it's handed us even as the family, and, and I see the family. I I see that. So now we, now we are we're married. We fill up. Now we have kids, right? And that the image continues down the way. The imaging continues taking place. That's um, right. And bringing his rule everywhere. But in the specific context of a man and his wife and his kids, like what, what is the, what are some helpful marching orders? Like what even guides you? Like maybe you pray when you wake up, Lord, just help me, you know, other than like, help me not to be, you know, kind of a jerk today, of course that, but like, is there a greater, not just a, a defense, but an offense, like help me to create good good conversations that are like uh, beautiful or what kind of hippie stuff you got from me here? <laughs> well, I think that a good place to start is when God is, I believe it's in Genesis. Actually, I couldn't tell you for sure. 14, maybe it's when God, I'm pretty sure this is where God is going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to investigate them in order to destroy them. And he says to himself, shall I hide what I'm going to do from Abraham? And he's essentially bringing Abraham into his council. He's got two angels with him. And there's always a third council member, like we see with you know Jesus. You've got the three, um, James, Peter, James, and John. Um, so Abraham gets brought in as this third council member. And he, he reasons with God. But before this happens, God is like, shall I hide what I'm going to do for, from Abraham since he is going to become a great nation? And he's going to guide and lead his house. He's going to instruct his house in my ways. These are This, this is the thing that God raised Abraham up to do it was specifically to instruct his house in god's ways and that requires the, the way that we talk about in the book is it requires three basic um virtues 
you need wisdom, you need strength, by which we mean both physical and mental strength. So, you know, the, the ability to bear weight, whether it's psychological or not, mm-hmm. and workmanship, which is a, a willingness to work diligently, not necessarily um, like a lot of people, when they think of masculinity, they, they may think of a very high level of workmanship um, where you, you know, you become an expert in your craft. But we wanted to emphasize that Adam wasn't made to be an expert in his craft, not yet. He was made to work and by working, become an expert in his craft. So we're certainly not saying, you know, you shouldn't shouldn't aspire to excellence. That's crazy. Of course you should. But you you can do good work for God, even when you barely know what you're doing. You're just kind of muddling through and figuring it out. So workmanship was how we described that. And from, oh yeah, please go. From strength, workmanship, and wisdom, you can uh, kind of develop these um, these manly duties, we call them. And so the first duty is envisioning and planning. So it's really thinking, it's having wisdom about your workmanship. What are you going to be doing? Mm-hmm. And then you can have the second duty is building and supplying, which is workmanship upheld by strength. And the mm-hmm. third duty is guarding and fighting, which is strength guided by wisdom, the way that we talk about mm-hmm. it. Um, so having these kinds of principles in place helps you when it comes to you know figuring out what what is it that you're specifically going to need to be doing today or establishing your mission in the future what is it that you're going to be doing well whatever it is it's going to revolve around the skills that god gave you and the place that he put you in and then applying these duties to them in order to develop these virtues of wisdom workmanship and strength I, and I know Michael Foster, he says like this super bovink line, grace restoring nature. Like I hear him right. say it's so much like a total bovink bootlicker and it's true and it's awesome. And, <laughs> and we see that there. So for the most practical part of this interview, what are just like, what's like one or two just quick things like on the defense and the office offense, like, and I'm just gonna, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to add one of them because it's the one that hit me the most. It was okay controlling your emotions Mm, and that one stuck with me you guys like a man controls his emotions i'm like oh that's really good i'm even trying to hand that to my son and this is disconnected but i saw this like a year ago i saw this meme of and whoever said memes don't work are are dumb memes are so encouraging to me i'm always great meme warfare that's where we're at now that's sixth generation warfare right and it was like during those, I think it was like during some floods, maybe the floods that we had here in Louisiana. And it was just this ripped dude carrying this lady, like he was up to his yep. waist in water. I don't know if you saw us. And then I there's did. another one of this dude holding like the like the lady's purse or backpack. And it was like, <laughs> don't be the guy that carries the purse. And I'm, like, <laughs> and I'm honest, I'm not even lying. More than a Bible verse, that is one of the things that motivates me. But that's the beautiful part because that's part of who we are. And so that is from God. It's part of our nature and our nature is good and it is actually super spiritual. So anyways, um, that's the one that I will put forward as like a huge applicable takeaway, like one or two things. What what might you add? Mm. Well, controlling your emotions is a huge one. That's something which I is always at the top of my list for teaching my sons, especially because a huge amount of the trouble that we're having as a society right now 
is because men were not taught to control their emotions as mm. they were young. And so as their emotions became more volatile and powerful as they became teenagers, they were unable to deal with them. They were overwhelmed by them and ruled by them. And so yeah. they became a city without walls. You know, Proverbs speaks of how a man without self-control is like a city without walls. And teaching our sons to be men with walls, to be cities with walls, is incredibly important if we're going to develop them into the kinds of men who can reverse that effect. So yeah, controlling your emotions is a big one. Um, a few of the things that we, we talk about that have been very helpful to men, judging from our, <laughs> the analytics on our website, is the idea of um, the, the way that we talk about ourselves and think about ourselves. Uh, a huge problem that a lot of men have is that they, they seek praise. And so they will, they, they because men are designed for honor, right? We, we all want yeah. the honor of other men. But because we've, we're in this situation where we're also soft and weak now, we go out seeking that honor rather than allowing it to come to us. Mm. So stop seeking praise is a simple one that you can do. Stop being okay. self-deprecating is another yeah. one. Um, that's another way that a lot of men kind of seek praise in a backhanded way. They, they will they'll talk themselves down or insult themselves yeah. in order. I think there are two main reasons they do it. One is that they're hoping that someone will contradict them and say, oh, mm. no, 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 actually, you're great. Yeah. So it's another way of seeking praise. But a second thing that a reason that they do it is because they want to diminish people's expectations of them because they're afraid that they aren't going to meet them. Mm. So they are always insecure about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, the complaining. Per- Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, go on. I was, I was saying for me that actually that one was a good one. Like I would hear you guys talk about like, you know, don't always be right don't always like have to have like the last Facebook. Response. That's a huge one. The, like, the, the desire for men to demonstrate dominance, especially in theology. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I've got any manly skills, but I've got a huge brain. I will crush yeah, you right? with my brain. And <laughs> therefore I have to know everything. I have to always have the answer. I have to always be right. That's actually incredibly effeminate. That's really weak. Like if you oh. really think that at the age of 30, you've got all the answers and every single position that you've settled on is perfectly correct. You're insane. Okay. So I'm wired to have some sex and I, and I could have it and it's awesome. I'm wired to, to eat. So I get hungry and I could satiate that. But brother, I want some freaking violence and some combat. <laughs> What's that? Where, how does that fit? I want to, I want to punch these. So here's, here's the, we know this isn't the way I do want to punch. <laughs> There's a lot of people I want to do a throat punch to like, for sure. Yes. They're, they're dishonoring my King and I pisses me off. Right. But we know that's not the way, but, but where do I direct that friggin' rage, man? I want to get it out. Well, I would, I would advise you to direct the rage toward the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross, because I don't think that the anger of man can produce the righteousness of God, but taking a point about holy violence, certainly we see plenty of that in the scripture itself. You know, one of the, the man on whom the spirit comes most often in the old Testament is Samson. And we don't tend to think of Samson as a hero of the faith, but he is. And understanding that, like, if all these theology nerds would spend as much time understanding the mysteries 
of all of the heroes of the faith and why they're heroes and what it all means, they would do so much better than if okay, they were spending gonna... all their time studying the, the Trinity to the nth degree, which is way above our pay grade anyway. No, no, I'm with you. But no, and see, I I see it in the Old Testament. You know, I yep. see it like, you know. Yeah, Israel was sent out to war. His so armor what's... Yeah, what, what are we supposed me? to be doing? Like me and you, like I see you yeah. got some bows and arrows. Maybe you'll, right, you know, yep. you'll yep. maybe you'll shoot something. And then that, that does scratch an itch. But there is something about like physical contact and not even just um, like jujitsu with your friends. Like you want to like, uh, like there's a, there's a, an amount of glory involved with like war and stuff. And we love those movies. Like, where is that supposed to be directed? Like directed. So in an unfallen world, obviously there wouldn't be war and scripture speaks of, you know, bashing our, plow, our um, spears down into plowshares and so on. But when Adam was created, I think a lot of Christians imagine that the world that God made was this perfect paradise. Mm. But that's not the picture that Genesis gives us. If that were the case, what was Adam made for? Why did God make him in the first place? Yeah. Adam is made and put into a garden, which is the perfect paradise. And the garden is meant to be as a model for him so that he knows what he's meant to do with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world is full of crocodiles and probably dinosaurs and mm -hmm. all these super tall trees that he's going to have to chop down in order to create houses and all these kinds of things. So the, the kind of work that Adam was made for is definitely strong physical work and definitely involves um like when when genesis says subdue the world exercise dominion over the world the the hebrew term actually means subjugate it's the same word that's used in other places of kings coming and defeating an enemy and putting them under their feet so i don't think that adam had a combative relationship with the world in that sense but i do think that it was a an agonistic relationship if you think about the way that men tend to compete with each other when they're friends it's still agonistic in the sense that there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into it. And they're not concerned about hurting each other within certain limits and yeah. that kind of thing. I, I um, don't love, I don't, I don't love that. I don't love this. And you're right. I mean, I think you're right, but I don't love it because like the, the fallen nature in me wants to touch every girl's boobs. Right. right? But at least like, not at least, but you know, but I'm, I could have that outlet with my wife's boobs and that's you right but it's like you see where i'm going with this like i want to like we want to battle in but is that purely like are you saying that that's like just a full-on like post like only a post fall thing or i know i don't mean to back you in a corner out like put you in a corner maybe you haven't thought about this much but i've always wondered that i think that aggression is a pre-fall thing it's designed into us because mm -hmm. there are many things that we need to have aggression towards in order to defeat those challenges that god has put in our way mm -hmm. but i think that the desire to maim and kill other people is a post-fall thing because That's how true. how could that possibly be something that you would do if those people weren't sinners right even even as you were saying that i thought you know what i'm talking about a, a guy who's never seen war and like, mm. if I like, I, I get so sad if I even watch a video, even if it's like someone like mugs an old lady and then they like beat the crap out of that guy and mugged him. I'm like, ooh. So you're right. I kind of take it back. People crack open their Bible and they want to get motivated for the day. They want to get even just get a big picture of Bible. 
most people are spending time in New Test the New Testament and they're learning about the like Jew and Gentile relationship. Like that's that's what it's about. How can I get the hype? You know, and not in the bad word. Like hype's a good thing. I'm being stirred. Like I get stirred to be the man I'm created to be. How does how does one get hyped? Like, have you seen that video of that guy who went to prison and he always has a shirt off and he's all freaking ripped and he just yells at you? He's I like, think so. Yo, don't eat that burrito. Your kid's going to come up and hit your man titties and say, why'd you eat it, dad? Why'd you eat it? And he just like, <laughs> and it actually hypes me up. I'm like, okay, okay. But um, where do you, where can we go for like, like I, I want to, I want to get stirred. I don't want to like forget these things that I've learned because they're so important, but it's not really the the subject matter. Mm. I guess there are different ways that you could answer that. One of the things that occurs to me is that I think that a lot of Christians spend so much time in scripture alone, which is not how scripture was made to be read. Scripture was made to be read in community. And if you have a good church around you and you've got good brothers in that church and you're spending time continue continually with them developing in piety and studying the word and so on i think that you tend to be much more stirred up by that than by personal quiet times scripture itself says you know don't neglect meeting together but mm -hmm. consider how to stir one another up to love and good works mm -hmm. so i think that the community aspect is really important and in that regard i would also say family worship is really important because that's yeah. the that's in our daily service that's where our focus on God is <laughs> focused. Right. That's that's where it is. So I would say that the the time that I spend in the Word in the mornings is usually it's it's really more of a familiarization time. It's keeping myself familiar with the Word, and then the time that I spend with the Word in the morning with my family is a time that I actually look forward to. So like this is where I get to teach my children and see what they're learning and see how they're growing in the word and that stirs me up much more than just reading the word by myself good all right we've been talking with non-tenant co-author of it's good to be a man a handbook for godly masculinity and he's the author of the spine of scripture god's kingdom from eden to eternity you could check out his website non.com which is b as in boy b n o n n a lot of good stuff there. You're like a Heiserite, but without all that bad Arminianism, which <laughs> like I could I can't even finish that. Like it's so good. And then he gets there and oh, it's like man, Ooh. it's painful. It's, yeah, yeah I, I it's okay. He know he knows now. He's in glory. <laughs> he realizes he was wrong. Totally. So um, I mean, I I'm gonna ask you back in a, a few months to come and, and talk about that's some like legit biblical theology. Um, so yeah, we could chat that. Brother, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad. We came to cheer the sad. We came to leave.